it was another big news week. In some cases, one for the record books. We may be in the dog days of summer, but the news cycle seems to neither know nor care. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. Tish James made no secret of her desire to look at the NRA's operations. We'll hear about this crazy weather we've been having. We had more rain on Tuesday from 3 to 5 o'clock than the entire month of June. And we'll talk to a local college student who's quarantining in her dorm room. It's kind of mind over matter in the situation that we're in. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened in the paper and online this week. Big news, actually, very recently. We're taping this on a Thursday, and this just dropped. The AG, Tish James, is, uh, is filed a lawsuit to dissolve the NRA. Is that as big as I think it sounds? Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And it's been long awaited. Um, anybody who has been uh, watching everything that's happened to the NRA in recent years know, knows that it has been beset by accusations both from inside and outside of self-dealing by Wayne LaPierre, who is the executive director, as well as kind of a coterie of, of insiders there. This has to do with the fact that four individual defendants and the NRA as a corporation, unfortunately, did not follow not-for-profit law in the state of New York. And as a result of that, they should be held accountable. And that's why we seek their dissolution. We seek the banning of these four individual defendants. We seek restitution. Um, it's primarily because these individuals, unfortunately, did not follow the mission of the NRA. Jess, you know me, I am loath to recommend um, the outstanding journalism of other outlets, but I highly recommend that folks check out um, the reporting of Danny Hakem of the New York Times, who is a former uh, Capitol Bureau colleague of mine. He was the bureau chief there for a while. He's been covering the NRA for the Times very, very well, as well as the second season of Gangster Capitalism. I don't know if you're familiar with that podcast. It is second only to this podcast in quality, but its, it's second season is devoted to the NRA, and it's, it's amazing. I listened to it on a couple of long bike rides just a couple of weeks ago. It speaks directly to a lot of the activities, alleged self-dealing, feather betting, kind of rigging internal board elections, that type of thing that are alleged in the lawsuit brought by Tish James. Um, let's go switch gears and talk locally. Uh, news this week that our uh, county executive of Albany County, Dan McCoy, says he had COVID in December. Tell us about that and why it's remarkable. He found in an antibody test, and we're a little, a little bit hazy on when he took that antibody test, that in fact, he was positive for um, the coronavirus. So I had the uh, COVID back in December, January. They put the timetable down before it even broke here, before we even knew about it, uh, when I was traveling with County Executives of America and traveling with the military all through Texas. So I got it somewhere along the line in that time frame, and I know when I was sick. Back then, nobody would have thought that, you know, having a fever, uh, having perhaps some respiratory distress 
would have been coronavirus. I don't think it's, you know, you'd have to get well into February before anybody would even consider that those, um, those symptoms, if they didn't turn into something that would land you in the hospital on a respirator, would be associated with what was back then considered to be a virus that was, you know, uh, raging through parts of China and, uh, and had made inroads in Europe. But it really wasn't until, until February that we really started to, um, to think seriously about, uh, about coronavirus as uh, the pandemic that we've all come to, uh, to regard it as. To know and love <laughs> and make part of our lives. Um, switching gears to education, although still under the COVID umbrella, the start of school is rapidly approaching for New York. We're less than a month away. And uh, teachers unions have had something to say about that. Can you uh, tell us how that's unfolding? Yeah, the two largest uh, teachers unions, UFT and NYSET, have both said that um, they want the state to issue strict protocols for what schools and school districts will do in the event of a positive coronavirus diagnosis within a school after a school opens. And what they want to see is a two-week strict lockdown um, that, that's just sort of the, the immediate protocol. Um, it's hard to imagine that there aren't going to be dozens, if not hundreds of schools, that go through exactly that, where you have a single diagnosis. So it's, it's kind of the question of, it's the old expression, you know, one monkey don't stop the show, but will one coronavirus diagnosis essentially sh shut down a school and send everybody home to work remotely for, for at least two weeks? That is, that's what the unions are, are pushing for. We're talking at midday on Thursday. Governor Cuomo has not yet issued, he's made hints, but he has not yet issued his sort of broad policy announcement on what exactly schools need to do, how strict their plans need to be before they can open up. But that's, of course, something that the teachers, as well as, of course, parents are, uh, are eagerly awaiting. Sure. It goes without saying, we are watching it closely as well. You did a Times Union Live this week on, on Monday, and you talked to a local author uh, and professor at the University at Albany. Yeah, so Ed Schwartzchild is uh, an accomplished novelist with um, uh, an award-winning first novel, Responsible Men, under his belt, as well as a collection of short stories. And back in the spring, uh, we struck upon the idea of wouldn't it be great during the summer to have essentially some summer fiction in the Times Union. Years and years ago, we actually had a staff-produced serial mystery set around the Saratoga racetrack that ran in um, the feature section over a couple of weeks. I actually wrote one of those chapters. I have not gone back to look at it in a while, but so we thought this time perhaps we'd get a professional uh, writer of fiction to, to maybe contribute. And I spoke to Paul Grandal, who of course you know, an outstanding columnist who now runs the State Writers Institute, to see if he had any idea of, uh, of a kind of regional writer who might you know, have a novella in his or her hip pocket that we could run over a couple of weeks. And he suggested Ed Schwarzschild, who was someone who we both know, who is associated with the Writers Institute, but more importantly than that, had a novel coming out uh, at the end of the summer. The book is, is scheduled for an October publication, but I think it, you know, copies are, are being made available a little bit early. And it has a fantastic kind of journalistic hook to it, which is that it's set in large part uh, around the operations of the TSA unit at Albany International Airport, which is actually named in, in the novel. And Ed himself had worked for a little bit less than three months as a TSA uh, officer in training that he wrote about 
So we have four excerpts from the novel, which is called Insecurity, two words, appearing, uh, uh, the first, first installment ran uh, in print as well as online, but the uh, subsequent three installments will, will run online, along with a wonderful essay that Ed wrote about what it was like to work in the TSA as essentially research for the novel, and that's, uh, that's what we discussed. Excellent. Well, go to timesunion.com to check that out. Uh, Casey, we'll check back in with you next week for top news stories. But in the meantime, here is an excerpt from your interview with Ed Schwarzschild. So tell us a little bit about your, your protagonist, Gary Waldman, a, a lucky guy in many ways, but unlucky in the sense that he is freshly widowed when your book begins. He, he is, as you say, he's a, a grieving husband. And also he's learning as best he can, how to be a single parent after the loss of his wife. And, and that's where we meet Gary. He's been working for the TSA for a while. The book asks throughout, like, why, why is he working for the TSA? What does he find there? And part of what I discovered about Gary is that he actually derives some comfort from the, the rule-based world of the TSA, that in a world where so many things are unexpected and there's so many things to feel insecure about, he finds some grounding in knowing what the protocols are and knowing what he's supposed to do at every moment of the day. And as, as the story goes on, he, he finds that that sense of control is challenged by several pieces of his life. Can you talk a little bit about how this story sort of gestated and when it kind of took the swerve into, into being set you know, against the, the backdrop of TSA? You know, like so many of us, after 9-11 in 2001, I, I was thinking a lot about writing and what writers should do and, and processing that, that event. It was soon after I had moved to Albany. I was struck by the ratcheting up of security sort of in every aspect of our lives. I became really interested in the Department of Homeland Security and in the TSA in particular. And I found myself writing a character who worked for the TSA almost Without, without really thinking about it too much. It's just Gary became somebody who was a TSA worker. And once that was the case, it, it presented a lot of uh, challenges to me. I began to wonder what it would be. I mean, when you read about the TSA in the, in the press, by and large, it's, it's a pretty villainized profession. And, and people who work for the TSA are, by and large, depicted in, in not super flattering terms. Uh, and I, I was interested in thinking about, well, we have you know, tens of thousands of people now working in, in, in this line of, of work. Some of them are mothers, some of them are fathers, some of them uh, might have lost a spouse, some of them are facing challenges. They're, they're real, fully complicated individuals. And that's who I imagine Gary was, but I needed to figure out what his workday was like. So I, I tried to do research uh, as best I could. I read a lot. I, I was a news junkie for the TSA, still am. And I tried to talk to people who worked for the TSA. When I would travel, I mean, it sounds a little odd, but it's what I would do when I would travel and pass through a checkpoint, wherever it was. I would try to have conversations with people who worked there to get a sense of who they were. Which uh, probably freaked them out a bit, I would imagine. Exactly. I didn't get a lot of great information that way. I would elect the pat down uh, just to have a little more time to talk to somebody. Uh, but again, that wasn't a moment to have a conversation. So that method of research wasn't really that successful. I tried to talk to people who had worked the job for a long time, but they were also were not that open. So I started checking the want ads 
But then as I was checking the one ads, there was a, an opening for Albany International Airport for the, the morning shift from 5 to 9 a.m. So I thought, okay, I could do that if they would have me. It was a little bit less than three months that you worked at Albany Airport. What was the job like? It's hard work. It's demanding work. It's what I call kind of grinding work because you're, you're going through a rotation all day long. I was on a part-time shift. But even in that brief time, I developed a lot of respect for the, the people I was working with and, and the sort of difficulty they faced in terms of just, just doing the job and then also just you know, dealing with a ton of people every day who, who really don't necessarily like them. I was impressed by how people held themselves together and what, what surprised me and impressed me uh, that I wasn't as aware of before was that a lot of people were coming to this job for the benefits for the security, for the promise of advancement. If you, if you do the job well, you can move up in the world of the DHS. If you do the job well, you can raise a family and have good benefits. And that, that I think helped to give me a lot more empathy for the people working at the checkpoint. Uh, did you ever catch anybody at anything? Did you ever find um, contraband that was kind of beyond the, the usual, you know, pocket knife that somebody might have forgotten that they put in their purse or their backpack or something like that? I heard other people on the checkpoint find, you know, guns that had, they were slipping through that shouldn't, people forgot about their guns, which seems difficult to imagine, but it happens all the time. And some of them are loaded. I found the the things that you're describing, you know, the, the, the knives, the small knives, things like that. And, and usually it was with somebody else's help. But I, I personally know did not, I did not stop anybody from bringing a plane down. You write about the fact that you were, uh, you were counseled by sort of the more veteran employees about sort of having what might be called a command presence. In other words, having sort of a, a good kind of command voice, being able to, to tell people what to do, that, that was, that's a key component of the job, right? Yeah, absolutely. There were a couple sort of almost like mantras we would hear. Command presence, uh, create calm was another one. And they, they worked together. Did I possess those qualities? You know, I, I think I got better in the course of the, the time I worked there. It's another skill that, that comes with confidence. And you, you have to feel that, you're, that you know all the protocols and, and the procedures to develop that confidence. But it, it, it does make the job go better. And it, it's kind of what it seems on some level, if you're doing it, appropriately and correctly, it's what passengers want too. You, you don't want to get a pat down from someone who's, who doesn't really know what they're doing. You want to, you want to pat down, if, if you're going to get a pat down, you want it to be quick and accurate and you want to then move on. I'll ask you specifically about, about the pat down. I mean, what was it like becoming more comfortable with that process over the course of the weeks you worked for TSA? It was by far the most difficult part of the job. It was the part that I, that I thought maybe I couldn't do. And I, I, you know, I, I'm still not comfortable with it. We practiced it in training. That was one way in which the, the organization works to get you more comfortable with what you're being tasked with. So you would practice on your, your, the people you were training with in order to learn how to do it. And that's that there's a little bit of jocularity with that. There's, there's some joking that goes on. There's, everybody's uncomfortable together and trying to learn how to do this. When you're being told how to do it, the, lang the language is kind of couched in like, okay, it's kind of like a household chore in a way. Like use, use the same pressure you would use with your hands that you would use when you're spreading some peanut butter on a sandwich. But, and then when you're up on the checkpoint doing them for the, 
for the first time on actual passengers, there's always somebody with you. So when you're an officer in training, that means there's somebody shadowing you the whole time, making sure you're doing the procedure correctly and, and advising you when you make a misstep. But I still, I never felt comfortable. I never felt <laughs> extraordinarily proficient at it either because it is, it feels invasive. It feels dehumanizing. I was surprised by overall the, the willingness of most, pe most people to go through it. Uh, most people were far less affected by what was going on than I was internally. They were, it was very casual. They, they'd clearly done it a million times. Uh, they just wanted me to do the pat down so they could move on. But, but there were other, other times when it felt that the discomfort was shared. So I, I don't have an easy answer to that question, Casey, because I, I still find it difficult, but I felt I could never understand Gary without moving through that. Did you uh, encounter people when you were at work who you knew from your other, your other realm of existence, as it were? And what was that, <laughs> what was that like? And that was another different challenge for me, right? I mean, my, my very first day actually on the floor of the checkpoint, I was pretty terrified. The very first morning I was up there, a colleague came through and he immediately recognized, he, he recognized a me. Colleague, he was, a colleague from UAlbany. From UAlbany, that's right. A, an emeritus professor from UAlbany. And he came through with his wife. His wife was in a wheelchair, so she was being directed in a different path through the checkpoint. Uh, but my friend came through and he, he, an older gentleman, a, a Southern gentleman, a really sweet guy. And his immediate response when he saw me was just like, that guy's an imposter. And, and it seemed to me he said it in a really loud voice. But I was, someone was shadowing me because I was in training. And he wasn't phased at all by what was happening. And my friend came through and he was coming through the scanner. So that, he just passed the scanner, no problem. Uh, we let him go. I said, hey, Gene, I'll, I'll talk to you later. It's nice to see you. Uh, and he moved on. But then he reunited with his wife. And uh, his wife asked again, in, in what sounded to me like a really, really loud voice, said, uh, what's Ed doing here? And, and Gene just, again, like even louder, like he was in front of some giant lecture. He said, uh, he's researching a novel. And, and at that point, I, I was ready to be, you know, escorted out of the airport. But in that, in that environment, it, those, those weren't threatening words. All right. And with that, um, I, I will close by noting that Insecurity has been called a strong new work from Ed Schwartzchild, a savvy and gifted novelist. And that comes from no less an expert than, uh, than William Kennedy. That's high praise indeed. Oh, Casey, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. And I, I, again, I couldn't be more grateful to the Times Union. Thank you so much. This week's weather was one for the record books. A tropical storm that started out as a hurricane, tornado warnings, thunderstorms, and buckets and buckets of rain. I checked in with meteorologist Jason Goff to get the full picture of what we just went through. All right, so let's talk weather. We've had quite a week already. I mean, the only thing that could make it crazier is if we had like an earthquake or something. But we had a hurricane, we had record rainfall. Just take us through the week. So yeah, it's, you know, the week of, week of the 3rd of August was a pretty active one. We had two tornado watches in three days. So on Sunday the 3rd, we had a tornado watch that was put up and we actually had the National Weather Service went out and surveyed damage out in Southern Berkshire County and Northern Litchfield County in Connecticut uh, and found uh, three tornado touchdowns there. 
two EF zeros and an EF one. This area averages a couple of tornadoes a year, so it's not like it's unheard of. And most of them are small like that, but uh, still, a tornado is a tornado. And if you had a choice between dealing with a tornado and not dealing with a tornado, I think you're going to go with option B. You know what I'm saying? So uh, then we had a little bit of a respite on Monday, and then of course. Uh, ECS came up the coast and actually came inland and uh, pretty much rolled just to the west of the Hudson Valley. It was neat to kind of see that as it came up and then it crossed over into New England and, and on from there. Um, as is typical with landfalling tropical cyclones, we had uh, quite a few tornadoes farther downstate, but even up here, we had a tornado watch, as I said, the second of that week. And we did have, I saw two warnings in our area. One was kind of cut across um, Columbia County, made its way up like across 9J and all that. The thing about those types of tornadoes is that they tend to be very weak, especially the farther inland you go. Now, they can still do damage for sure. That's not to, not, not to belittle their importance, but generally speaking, tornadoes that come out of a more of a synoptic scale setup, that is, you know, cold fronts and warm fronts and upper level energy and high dew points and all that, you typically will get a lot stronger uh, tornadoes through those processes as opposed to uh, a tropical cyclone, which is sort of a one-stop shop to create a tornado, and they're generally weak. They spin up and, and, and quickly go away usually. So that was the case here. I don't believe the Weather Service even went out to uh, survey these. You know, I don't know that, but if they did find anything, I'm sure it was, it was relatively minor. We had, we had a heck of a lot of rain. That was the bigger story with this. Yeah. I mean, we had record rainfall, right? For whatever the period of time is like, what was the distinction? I, I totally geek out over these. Um, if you can see over my left, no, my right shoulder, I have a Cliff Clavin back there. It's still in the package. So, you know, one of my heroes, I love little facts and things, especially when it relates to weather. So check this out. We had, it was the fourth wettest day on record in Albany, which is where they, uh, at the airport, where they officially keep the climate record there. Uh, so the Weather Service put that out. And then just looking at some of the numbers myself, we had more rain on Tuesday from three to five o'clock, which was a little over two inches than the entire month of June which was a little under two inches. So that's really something else. When you could say we got, you know, I mean, and, and anecdotally, a lot of times people will say, oh, it's been a wet summer. It's been a dry summer. It has definitely been a dry summer. There's no question about that. But we, uh, we paid the check, Jess, <laughs> because with that rain that was involved, you know, that two-hour window, we had obviously a lot of rain on either side of that. We had more rain on Tuesday than we did in the entire month of July. So the total was 3.92 inches. And believe it or not, we're still in a deficit uh, officially, but only by about, uh, well, by the time this airs, it'll be just about two inches or so, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing. So sure. that was really the big deal with this. It was, it was quite a storm. As far as you know, flooding and stuff goes, I mean, there, there was a flood watch, a flood warning. There was a bunch of you know, flood-related issues, but it didn't seem like, I mean, there were a couple of, of flooding problems, but it didn't seem like it created like a mass hysteria. No, no, which is good. I mean, part of the reason for that is that it has been a dry summer, so the ground can take a lot. Now, the ground can only take so much when you're talking about you know, tremendous rainfall rates like we had you know, one to two plus inches per hour. I mean, the ground can only, you know, handle that. And, you know, not for nothing when the ground has been 
pretty much devoid of rain, it does become hard. So it's harder for the rain to absorb into it, at least initially. So you do kind of get that runoff effect. So yeah, they, we, were, we were placed under a flash flood watch and then we did have some flash flood warnings uh, through you know, no surprise from anybody. The highest rainfall totals were actually to the west of the Hudson Valley. So this was a very well forecasted storm. And so the rain that fell to the west of the Hudson Valley and into the Hildebergs and even into the immediate capital district and up and down the Hudson Valley, it did bring some flooding. But it was, again, the, the flash flooding kind. So it basically shows up and then goes away. Uh, it, it, that's what happened here. That's not always the case with flash flooding. Certainly, we're well aware of that from other tropical cyclones that have made their way uh, up into our neck of the woods. You know, Irene, of course, is, a, is unfortunately a stark example of that. But you're absolutely right. In this case, um, we had, you know, a lot of rain in a short amount of time. So there were some spots. You know, you see the road closures typically like Western Avenue out by Stuyvesant Plaza. There's a low spot there. Uh, and then I live in Del Mar, Ellesmere Avenue uh, between Delaware and Kenwood uh, can get kind of flooded out there. And that was the case. That, that's the second time that's happened this year. So, you know, I mean, water wins. <laughs> you know, when it comes at that rate and in those amounts, uh, we just kind of have to wait for the water to kind of just chill out. But as far as tropical cyclones go, we, we actually did about as well as we could with this. We didn't have really any major wind damage. There were a lot, it was a lot worse downstate. So we did okay in this area. Downstate, it was a lot worse. Of course, uh, unfortunately, there were some fatalities. Uh, there were lots and lots of power outages. Uh, downstate, it was uh, the number three uh, in terms of power outages behind Sandy and Irene. So this thing was no joke down, downstate. There was a lot more damage in New Jersey. We did very well up here, comparatively speaking, with that storm. Sure. Now, looking forward, I know, you know, predicting the distant future is not really, you know, what this game is about. But what are we looking at, you know, going into the later part of August and, and the early fall? Is there anything that, that stands out to you yet? Yeah, well, uh, Colorado State University, actually, on the 5th of August, they update their forecasts uh, for hurricanes throughout the year. Um, they have a really good, solid core of uh, men and women there, meteorologists that, that are tropical experts. And so they, they do their own research. They run models and all kinds of things. And they actually upped their forecast from their previous one. Um, so I believe now they're talking about up to 24 named storms, including what we've already had. Oddly enough, it, it's been a record year in terms of where we are and how many named storms that we've had. But fortunately, at least as of now, they've all been relatively minor storms. We had a storm that hit South Texas, you know, that brought some flooding to the lower Rio Grande Valley down there where they're, you know, they have major issues there with COVID too, of course. So that just sort of added to that. But in terms of the meteorology of that, um, we had that. And then we had, you know, a couple of storms that made landfall. I mean, we had Faye that came through here a little earlier, rolled up through the Berkshires. So um, it's been an active year. And I'll try not to totally geek out on you, but what they call the accumulated cyclone energy, the ACE. So that is if you add up all of the strengths of each individual storm and kind of they assign a, a scale to it, that's been relatively low. So like a storm with a high ACE would be a storm like, you know, Matthew or one of those big ones that hit in the, over the last few years. And then the smaller storms are ones that don't have a lot of energy. So, so far, despite the quantity that we've had, 
the quote-unquote quality has been low, and that's what you want. We don't want any high-quality hurricanes, that's for sure. Wow. Well, I want to put in a pitch to use Jessica, my name, because my name has never been used as a storm name that I could find when I tracked the record. So, really? Okay. That depends on what kind of storm you'll be, Jess. I mean, are you going to be a nice, gentle storm, or are you just going to be kind of mean, you know? I, I, we'll, I'll, I'll drop that in to the World Meteorological Organization, but uh, I don't want to vouch for you if you're going to be mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. Well, we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. There is really a, a path to having your name uh, put in, and the, the way that happens is if a storm is bad enough, then it will, the name will be retired and it will be replaced. So this year, for example, this last storm, ECS, I think Isabel was the name that was retired because of it. So you, you'll be somewhere down the line in the, in the Jays. I'll keep you posted on that, let you know what we find out. All right, well, thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. All righty, thank you, Jess. After the break, imagine being stuck in a tiny college dorm room for two weeks straight. We'll talk to a student who's living that right now. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. It was a big week for many local college students in the Capital Region. Classes haven't yet started, but thousands of students from out of state return to their campuses to quarantine for two weeks before the semester starts. That's 14 days of confinement in a dorm room, or in some cases, a hotel room. But as some students like Siena College junior Meredith McElroy say, it's a small price to pay to be able to return to campus life. Times Union education reporter Rachel Silberstein spoke to her this week. People like you, Meredith, are basically confined to one room, right? Are you, do you have your own bathroom? Is that how it works? We do, yeah. So at Siena, everyone is living in Snyder Hall, which is a junior dorm, and all of the rooms over here have our own bathrooms, um, showers, sinks, all of that, yeah. And there's no roommates, right? Everyone's getting their own room this semester, or? For quarantine purposes, actually, there are two people in most rooms. I have kind of a different circumstance. I'm living in my own room because Snyder Hall will be my permanent residence for the school year. Um, but most people have one roommate. Most people know each other, honestly, who are coming from out of state. So you could request to live with someone in the quarantine period that you know, which is great. Got it. So it's sort of this like little circle that you create. Are all the quarantine students allowed to interact with each other or are they supposed to keep to their separate bedrooms? Yeah, so we're not um, supposed to be interacting with anyone. We haven't left our rooms yet. Today is the first day that we're actually going to be allowed to just go outside for about an hour. We have some awesome employees of the college who are going to hang out outside and give us a little break from being inside for a while, which is that's, awesome. That's really intense. So you haven't left your bedroom for essentially seven days. Yeah, eight, this is day eight for me, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Can you talk me through sort of that process, like what that's like your first days, you're probably like, okay, this is weird. Tell me how you got your food, first of all. How did you guys eat? I came a couple days earlier than when most people moved in. So for the first four days, I was one of probably three or four people on campus. And so I had my first couple days worth of meals dropped off. Um, the college supplied us with a microwave and a 
refrigerator. So I had my meals in there, just kind of heating them up, cereal and things for breakfast, which was great. And then now, now that most people are here, I think we have 90 to 100 students on campus. They are dropping off our meals in the evening around five o'clock. So I'll drop off dinner for that night and then breakfast and lunch and snacks for the following day, which has been great. We've banned like isolation in prisons and this obviously it's not the same as prison as pretty comfortable living space. But what the, what's that like psychologically from the first day? Can you take us from the first day till today, sort of how you evolved and filled the time and managed to create some structure in your day? I think it's really what you're getting at is it's kind of mind over matter in the situation that we're in. Thankfully, I'm so grateful to have been working with some other students and some employees of the school to put together events for the people who are in quarantine. So I feel lucky to kind of be a middleman. I've been here for enough years that I have contacts, but I'm also in this quarantine situation. So we've been having activities like Zoom workouts. Campus ministry has been hosting events. We've had um, student wellness leaders hosting walk-ins and things so that the people who are in quarantine don't feel so isolated, even when you're physically isolated, we're not um, socially isolated, which has been a real blessing. But definitely the first day, couple days were weird, just mentally knowing that there weren't many people here at all. I just have been really good at making sure I have a routine during the day. So getting up and you know reading a little bit of a book, making sure I'm not sitting in my bed to have breakfast, uh, little things like that, painting during the day, finding little things to keep my mind occupied, calling family and friends a lot, just making sure that there's something to do every day to look forward to, kind of. Yeah. Um, so have you guys sort of like um, bonded over the fact that you're all on lockdown and can't leave your rooms? Yeah, a little bit. We had we had a, a Zoom last night with everybody who's in quarantine right now just to kind of chat about the fact that we'd be able to go outside today and it was good to just see some other faces of people who are here. It's been a, a big Santa motto to say that you are not alone during this whole pandemic quarantine process. Um, so it was great to just see see that other people are actually here and hear people moving in down the hall a couple of days ago was great. Can you talk a little bit about like last semester, how you know campuses were forced to shut down? What's it like sort of being a college student during this crazy period where it almost seemed like there wouldn't be a campus life this year. Right, absolutely. I think that most college students, if you ask them, none of us thought that schools were gonna close the way that they did. I know um, all my friends here, we were talking kind of like it was a joke and not really understanding the severity of the situation because I don't think anybody really did. Um, but you know, schools were telling us to bring our textbooks home and clothes home and things like that. And that was pretty surreal. I was actually um, heading out on an immersion trip to Guatemala for spring break when all of this wow. started happening. So a couple great friends and students from Sienna and I, we were in Guatemala when we heard that everything was closing. Um, and then to come back from that awesome trip and pack up my whole dorm room and drive home was surreal. It was a crazy experience. Thankfully, I brought everything home because if all my things were left up here, that would not have been good. But it was definitely a learning experience, learning how to do online classes. Not my favorite thing in the world, but our teachers, our professors were pretty pretty lenient and understanding of the situation, which was great. Is the general sentiment that like going into quarantine for two weeks and making some sacrifices about like social distancing and wearing masks, that it, it was worth it, it was a worthwhile sort of sacrifice to be able to return to some sense of normalcy? Oh, absolutely. I think that 
most, if not all of the people who are in quarantine right now realize that it's not something that the college decided. It's not something that we all want to be sitting around here for two weeks doing nothing, but um, we're pretty excited to, I think, see our friends and at least have the experience of physically being here on the campus. Yeah. Um, instead of all being at our own homes and doing classes online like that. Yeah. Have you guys sort of like fantasized about like, what is the first thing you're going to do when you're freed from captivity? Yeah, I have a little bit. Um, the first day that my quarantine is over, my roommate is moving back onto campus from Massachusetts. So I'm just excited to see her and see her parents, honestly, to just walk around campus and see what it's like and how it's changed. I know there's different precautionary things set up. We have some tents set up in the quad. So just excited to be a little bit more free once this is all over. That sounds like a surreal, crazy, wild junior year. Um, and it's really cool that you're, you got, you're so upbeat about it and are able to like see the positive and really like see it for what it is. Any other advice to the folks who are just starting out their quarantine right now, like about sort of creating some structure, some semblance of normal senior day? Yeah, I would just say for anybody at Siena or at other schools where you're having to quarantine, just make sure that you're checking in with other people, even if you don't want to. I've been you know, calling my mom every day and checking in, have some awesome friends who have been texting me every morning to ask me how my day is going. Um, just try and make it seem as enjoyable as pos possible, kind of. It's the whole mind over matter thing again. It's 14 days and it's it's not what we really want to be doing, but I know that after this, it'll, it'll be better and we'll be able to see people again, so yeah. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features.